In the criminal justice system, sexually based offenses are really, really hard to solve. So instead of doing that shit, we made a guy think he has multiple personality disorder. <laughs> this is his story. Dun dun! Dun dun! <laughs> God, that's, yeah. That's good. That's good. <laughs> All right. All right. Hello and welcome to The Good Apples, a podcast about Law and Order SVU, the real life events that inspired the show, and the worldview of the man himself, Dick Wolf. I am Josiah. I'm Kamira. I'm Josh. And unfortunately, Jackal is out today. Uh, he might be out next episode as well. We'll see. Um, but uh, he will be back, so never fear. And we are tackling the Boston Strangler for the next two episodes. That's a, we're doing our first two-parter. Right right out the gate. <laughs> right out the gate. Immediately. Yeah, so we decided to talk about the Boston Strangler. Um, <clears throat> it's kind of a good in about the, uh, the way that Dick Wolf pulls from past events and kind of tries to comment on them. Like, this is a good example of Dick Wolf dealing with the legacy of shit. Like, legacy of a major police procedural kind of thing that happened in the 60s um, and just kind of ongoing kind of commenting on that on top of that we watched uh, two movies about the Boston Strangler so today's episode is going to be focusing in on episode th- uh, was season three episode six am I right with that yeah number? which is called redemption <clears throat> and we are pairing that up with the 1967 68 eight. 68 film Boston Strangler, uh, directed by Fleischer, if I'm correct. Richard Fleischer? Yep. Yeah. Yes. So, but I think we're going to probably start off talking a bit about the Boston Strangler overall, like what actually happened, or at least what we know of what actually happened. A lot is unknown about unknown about the case. Um, and then we'll probably start with the movie before we move in to the actual Law & Order episode, in part because the Law & Order episode seems to be kind of responding to the movie in kind of a weird way, at least if you've put them together that way. So, um, at least I tell call and answer. Very call and answer. Yeah. Yeah. Which is very Dick Wolf. A lot of the, uh, a lot of the time that's kind of what he's doing is his episode is kind of a response to maybe something that something else that he's obsessed with. So I don't know. That being said, uh, we should probably, Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I I think it, this is kind of just an off the cuff thought, but it, it feels fair to say that the, the, the Boston Strangler film feels like a stylistic precursor to Law and Order. Uh, it's, oh yeah, I was. I mean, it, I was kind of surprised how like modern it felt stylistically and just narratively, and even the the dialogue. Like it, I don't know. Yeah, late sixties is one of those those time periods where there's a lot of stuff that feels like it comes from. The, well, that's every <laughs> every time, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't yeah. Know. yeah. There there was a very clear picture of what I thought a movie made in 1968 about the Boston Strangler would look like, and I was very surprised. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a it's um potentially distasteful film, but a pretty solid film. Uh, I'm kind of excited to talk about Certainly it. Certainly yeah. entertaining. Yeah. This episode was written by Jeff Urkel and directed by Ted Kotcheff, which uh, I don't I don't really know a lot about them, uh, but but we'll probably get to know the names of the directors and writers better as this time as time goes on here. I think um, for sure. So yeah, yeah. So let's uh, let's talk a bit about the Boston Strangler, uh, Chimera. I think you had some some stuff about that. Yeah. So the Boston Strangler um, 
is the name given to the murderer of 13 women in the greater Boston area between the years of uh, 1962 and 1964. Um, so eventually um, they arrested Albert DeSalvo as the murderer and um, he didn't officially get charged for those crimes. But it was kind of public knowledge that um, he was the murderer after they had arrested him and imprisoned him. However, um, both immediately after and during the investigation, as well as years and years later, like even to this day, um, people question whether Del Salvo actually committed the murders um, or all of the murders. Uh, many people believe that there was more than one murderer and that is something that um, really puzzles people to this day. And that's what we're going to see when Dick Wolf comes in with his episode is kind of his theory that, of course, Del Salvo didn't do all of the murders uh, or e even any of them. And it was a forced confession instead by the police. Um, and it actually turned out to be another guy who did it. And thus the strangler is still out amongst the public, still a danger. Yeah, and until... Uh... Elliot Stabler uh, valiantly saves him from extrajudicial slaughter uh, <laughs> to be to stand for a trial. Uh, oh my god! Oh man, we're gonna yeah, it's 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 gonna be so hard not to jump immediately to a lot of that. But um, before right. we do that, we should. Uh, oh, Kel uh, Chimera, did you want to say the names of the victims? Was that what you were gonna say? Or yeah, I just wanted us to take a little time to reflect on the victims um, because we are going to be kind of talking about um, a very serious case in which 13 women did brutally lose their lives. Um, so I wanted to take time to recognize those women. Um, so the first murder in, 19, in June of 1962 was Anna Slessler's. Um, who was uh, 55 years old, and she was considered one of the elderly women um, that was attacked uh, by the Strangler. Uh, next up, in also in June of 1962, is Mary Mullen, who was 85 years old and was another one of the elderly victims of the Boston Strangler. Next up, also in June of 1962, uh, was Nina Nichols, age 68. And then on the very same day, he also murdered Helen Blake, age 65. Um, so quite, quite, a, quite a few murders, at least four elderly murders um, within the span of June of 1962. So it was very much like he was in a frenzy with, um, with these murders. Next up, we have um, Ida Irga who is 75 years old um, and makes the fifth elderly victim of the Boston Strangler in August of 1962. Also in, I, in August of 1962 is Jane Sullivan, age 67, another elderly victim. And then it kind of changes pace here in December of 1962. We have a 20-year-old victim, Sophie Clark. And that's very interesting to see that change like that. We'll talk about this later in the episode, I'm sure, but... It's, it's very interesting to see deviation in pattern from serial killers, um, at least from, from the kind of victims they target. So it's weird for it to be all elderly women up to this point and then suddenly switch to a 20-year-old Sophie Clark. Um, next in December of 1962 is Patricia Bissett, who was 23 years old, another young woman. 
Then going back onto the trend of elderly women, we have Mary Brown at age 69 in March of 1963, who was murdered. In May of 1963, just a few months after Mary Brown, was Beverly Salmons, um, who was age 23 years old, so back to the young trend. And then right back again on the trend, um, straight back to the elderly assaults, um, Evelyn Corbin in September of 1963, who was 57 years old. And then wrapping us back up shortly uh, into two more younger victims, we have Joanne Graff and Mary Sullivan, um, age 23 and 19, respectively. Mary Sullivan was the last and final murder of the Boston Stranglers, um, as far as we are aware of. And that and, happened uh, in January of 1964. Yeah, and that's also the, uh, the case that uh, the body was uh, brought back up at one point, was dug back up at one point, and, yes. uh, which is replicated in the episode we're going to talk about a bit. And that is also the only crime that there is uh, DNA evidence linking DeSalvo <laughs> to, officially. So... Um, while the other 12 are technically left unsolved, although the consensus for a long time was that DeSalvo definitely did it, although that has shifted and we're going to get into that more as this goes. Um, but as you see, we're li listening off a lot of names, uh, names and dates there. There were 62 and 63 was the year. So, um, that kind of, uh, is part of the reason that 1968's Boston Strangler uh, is kind of panned as a pretty distasteful film to make as this was uh this was made five years after the events and literally if i'm correct the uh 60 in 67 was when uh when DeSalvo was uh, officially tried right something like that it's it's really close in time so this movie uh this movie got churned out while uh i mean the the bodies were barely cold and uh some people were pretty critical of that but yeah uh, but yeah, let's move. Uh, probably move on here to the film real quick. So, like, um, what do you, what were you guys' impression of the film? I guess we could start there. Yeah, it's it's entertaining. Like, it's stylistically bold <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, uh, like I was saying earlier, it felt it felt really modern in its perspective, and I think it's you know we, I think it's because culture has kind of turned toward this type of true crime story. So. Uh, yeah, it feels groundbreaking in a in a certain way. Um, so it's a it's a well made artifact, basically. I I kept thinking the whole time I was watching it, I was like, oh my god, Dick Wolf would love this. It just looks exactly like how he wanted Law and Order to look. Mm -hmm. It's very very beautiful and gritty looking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, it's got a lot of cool stylistic things. It's you know the first half of it especially has a real like. I don't know, beleaguered sixties cop kind of thing. Like, and it's, it's kind of ambiguous about whether the cops are the good guys in it or not necessarily too. at least in the beginning. I, I don't know. I I've had a hard, I have a hard time reading it because it does make them look pretty dumb, you know, especially um, cause I believe this happened in real life too. They ended up raiding like all the gay bars in Boston and like, you know, they were searching for, <laughs> Because of uh, some fucking false psychology that was like, well, so clearly since they had some, this, this killer hated women, you know, who really hates women is gay guys. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. And the film depicts them just like rot, you know, raiding a bunch of, you know. Oh, like just a, that, that <laughs> montage of, of just, uh cops responding immediately to the mildest harassment of women. 
was very funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that. <laughs> like, right. It's, it's, it's like street harassment that a, a cop basically wouldn't bat an eye at today. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, occurs and then a beat cop just like grabs the guy by the shoulder and hauls him off. <laughs> yeah, so it the film does like this cool job because it it does these like stylistically it does these cool like um, split screen kind of things going on right where it, like um, you know the full the full screen will have like three different shots going on at once, kind of yeah. fading in from black like I don't know like you're watching a. Yeah, split screen kind of thing. Um, it's 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 a cool look, and so what it it it's most effective at is communicating like what's going on with the city broadly, rather than like individual characters. And then it zooms in for individual characters, but like yep. they'll be like make announcement: women need to be worried. And then you get a bunch of shots in like three different three different shots on the same screen of like women buying guns and women, uh, you know, buying mace and shit and like preparing themselves, locking they, doors uh... and stuff. That's the the uh, fun fact that I think is really interesting is the greater Boston area completely sold out of locks um, during in the sixties. Uh... Yeah, in the in in nineteen sixty two all the way through like nineteen sixty five, they couldn't keep uh, padlocks on their shelves. That every type of lock and chain was being bought up in the city uh, by women to try to secure themselves from the strangler. Yeah, and I mean it. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, I, I don't think this is that crazy of a thing to say, but the the murders were very gendered, obviously. Um, and so, yeah, it was very much like women were scared at that time, um, mm-hmm. you know, of, of the specific murder. I don't know. There was a lot of paranoia. And then the, you know, cops cracking down kind of, ex- yeah. you know, like a, almost too hard on random shit and uh, kind of bungling the investigation consistently. Yeah. Yeah, for, for sure. And yeah, so that's, yeah, that's kind of the, the arc of the movie is like the murder happens mostly from the cops perspective, kind of showing the, the city's reaction. Uh, and then slowly, I think like, I, I, I guess, a, you know, by the midway point, st- slowly introducing the killer's perspective, like we get introduced to Albert DeSalvo and yeah. they use that, that split screen thing to have like the the victim and the killer's perspectives shown simultaneously. So, um, yeah, yeah. So the, I, I think the narrative it presents is pretty false, but it's like at least a, a really captivating portrayal of, I, I guess the atmosphere or something like there's yeah. some value to it. It's just not, it, you know, it's, you know, you want to, I'm sure it was like, Oh, refer to it as like a documentary style film or something like it's uh, mm-hmm. clearly it's it's not a representation of of reality as such but uh i don't know the scope of it was really interesting yeah it's it's really well made it also like i had mentioned it was controversial and specifically what it was panned at was being this is funny because this is something i already have an obsession with but they panned it as an exploitation film as like a high budget exploitation film and uh, I don't think they're wrong, even though no, I not. still like the movie. They're not, they're not wrong. wrong. Um, one is because it's exploitative of, you know, a headline from just a couple years prior while the fucking like <laughs> while the shit was still going on in court. Um, you know, yeah. still and still it, and it shows happening. very traumatizing scenes in the movie. Yeah. And you it know, does not for, shy away for, from especially the for a public that has those, you know, those murders fresh. Yeah, and mm-hmm. that yeah, yeah. I mean that that is a level of graphic violence that I don't think was common in 1968. 
No, uh, no. It's uh it's like a slasher at times. It really like has that feel. Um Yeah. You know, especially the kind of sexualized violence like you know, it's not hiding the facts of what happens. It shows really distinct and almost kind of gross male gazy kind of like shots of like shirts getting ripped open and you see the breasts yep. and then a knife going into the, you know, chest. Like very very much like a slasher. Like, you know, like your eighties slasher yeah. kind of look. Mm-hmm. Um which, you know, makes it a, it's an entertaining movie for sure. But it was something kind of icky about that where, like, I don't know. It's kind of like if um, I'm trying to think of some, like, nat, nat, you know, actual disaster or like a school shooting or something. And then, like, a couple years later, mm-hmm. they made, like, a Friday the 13th movie about a guy with a gun that kills people in a school. And you'd be like, what? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Can you imagine that. watching the Parkland shooting? movie but it's not a documentary it's filmed it's in just, a documentary perspective or it's filmed it's in just a, a drama um, oh yeah gosh yeah that would be awful i it, you'd have to do yeah. it really carefully anyway like the only example i could think of of a movie that's kind of like that but it does it really tastefully is polytechnic uh the villeneuve movie about the the yeah. shooting there it's pretty good i've uh, uh i've heard good things about van zant's uh elephant also, oh yeah it has kind yeah. of like you know you get more abstract about it and you try to kind of you know rather than like a graphic portrayal of uh a school shooting um i mean okay i'm not gonna lie there there is a very morbid part of me that i don't know there there's part like yeah what if what if you did that. like a uh portrayal of of children being blown apart with a with an assault rifle uh <laughs> Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm uh that's that feels like a dangerous image to approach. Um I don't know, but how mm-hmm. like <laughs> But also I don't know. Yeah, I love yeah. our society, man. <laughs> yeah, that's a dangerous image to approach, although there's something to also kind of like you know, to the there's kind of like the Cronenberg point about it, like he talking about a history of violence and dead ringers. I remember Cronenberg has this whole line about how or why he used the way why he used violence the way he used it in the film a history of violence was that he's like okay we want to have this heroic guy we're watching who does some vigilante justice but i want to make sure to confront you with the idea that the process of that vigilante justice wasn't just he shot a guy heroically he blasted a guy open meat flew everywhere blood sprayed everywhere this was a you know if you are going to warrant violence you need to be willing to warrant all of the violence and what it means to crush a body and stuff like that's his whole thesis and so i don't know there's a place for kind of exploitative i think ways of portraying violence right and because there's there's another there's another side to it where there really is uh like that brutality does proliferate in the culture like those there is you know there there are networks accessible where these images are circulated and encouraged. Uh, like, I mean, and, and a lot of it's in the military. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I got, what, what's the book, uh, code, code over country, but it, it discusses a lot of like the continued practice of like, uh, special soldiers more broadly, but specifically like seal team six guys, like mutilating the corpses of their victims. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or, you know, ca- casualties like there, there's the more it's their victims. These these are trained killers dispatched to murder people. Uh, they yeah, carry yeah. hatchets. They take trophies. They're 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 a biker gang with state funding, uh, you know, like um, 
so I don't know. There's part of me that's like this, this culture does need to confront that mm-hmm. in some way. There, there is a, you know, and then, um, I mean, something we can, you know, discuss later as we get kind of into the, the mythology of, um, of serial killers is, is, uh, how, uh, the phenomenon of of serial killing like you look at the history of it like uh i mean even even the the film itself like it it uh you know the way it incorporates news broadcasts you know the it's it's the cold war vietnam's going on you you know world war Mm -hmm. ii isn't that isn't that distant um the rise of this level of violence this behavior this stuff in society like the one thing we're prevented from discussing is how it relates to american violence abroad yeah uh, um and that's uh you know in in to some like and uh there's not a hundred percent of the time but i mean this is this is just what happens when young men are trained to kill they are sent somewhere encouraged to kill traumatized and then they are brought back uh to a society that uh has no space for them and uh i don't know yeah then you throw in the uh <laughs> Um, you know, sort of the the civil unrest, the chaos of American life in 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 the sixties and seventies, like yeah, I don't know, right? I mean, it's just like there are these hidden cultures of violence. There is a reason this stuff perpetuates and evolves over time, um, and the media plays a part in that. Yeah, absolutely. Like, well, and you know, a big part of this, like mentioning Vietnam here too, is like there is a pretty big shift in culture that kind of happens, like. Like if you're a film history geek at all, you you know everyone is very aware that there's like a major shift that happens in cinema in the 60s and 70s. Like, you know, the Hayes Code gets obliterated with movies like Bonnie and Clyde and like Night of the Living Dead, all sorts of you know movies of violence, and it's reflected part because of uh, Vietnam was the first war that we had AP journalists with fast enough like you know, cameras that were small enough and quick enough to be able to be following the troops around and taking pictures in the jungles while they're getting shot. So like, you know, Vietnam is like, is like a war where violence just started getting very kind of carelessly played on the news all the time. Um, in a way that like world war two was not able to. So just the TV was inundated with just like basically snuff footage. Like the sixties is crazy and seventies were crazy for this reason. So of course film changes in light of that, um, you know, and this, this was the big question. So, I mean, Boston Strangler, it comes out the same year that uh, night of the living dead came out. Another movie that was mm. denounced for being excessively violent and is in part responsible for the rating system in movies now. So yeah. Um, yeah. It had right in the, cause yeah, that gets all developed, uh, out of the ashes of the Hayes code and effectively becomes its replacement. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Get like the level of, I, I, I don't know. And it, it seems to be like a largely Catholic organization. The, the film ratings board, like it's, it's the level of censorship that has effectively continued in the wake of the Hayes code is, is wild. But, um, but no, like I, right. The sixties and seventies, the media environment, uh, Right. It's similarly, it's similarly wild. Like it hadn't been like (laughs) totally regulated yet. Uh, so right. You have, you have this unprecedented circulation of images of violence. And I mean, and then of course, by the development of personal media, just as you're kind of getting the airwaves nice and clamped down, then you can start circulating that on, uh, 
you know, video cassettes and, and what have you. And now it's the internet. Um, but it's, it, it, I'd, I'd never thought of that before. There is, there is a sense in which, uh, gore, gore and porn, which are, I, I feel like genres of visual image that are not studied enough for their effects on the human mind. Um, like we're, yeah, just on the airwaves and in public in, in a way, cause it's, Right, you have Vietnam War footage, and then in the seventies you have porno porno chic, where like rather high budgeted erotic films are just being shown in regular theaters for a minute, and it became like hip to discuss in polite company. Um, yeah, going on a date to see Deep Throat and stuff, all that good right, stuff. Yeah. But um, <laughs> to tie it, so then that's kind of the context that the Boston Strangling, like like Strangler, like that took place in was like in that kind of cultural shift starting to begin in the, you know, 62, 63. And then by the time the film's coming out, that's when things are really heating up. So there's, you know, that's kind of, I don't know, the historical context there. Um, I did want to note something about the relationship between the film and the police is during the film's production, the Boston police commissioner said it would be inappropriate for the police department to cooperate with the film in any way. Um, And their official reason was because the case was never officially resolved. They were like, this is an open case. We can't comment on the matter. Um, But what was really weird about it is it's not just that they refused to cooperate with the making of the film, but no police resources were allowed to be used in the film which is really not normal for the time in Boston. Um, So no police cars, there were no police extras used in the film, and he wasn't even allowed to gather stills of police buildings to use for the movie. And not only that, but the hospitals in the areas that, um, you know, uh, treated victims or, um, you know, had, had information regarding the case, um, they wouldn't cooperate either. Like, the whole city was not willing to cooperate with this film because it was considered that distasteful, just the making mm. of it at the time. Also, uh, I wonder if they knew that they fucked up the investigation so bad <laughs> that they were covering their Yeah, past. they were like, I don't know if that's uh, uh, yeah. They don't want to help a movie <laughs> being made about the process and then being like, okay, yeah, we did drag in a psychic at one point. <laughs> Which yeah, I, I mean, that, they did. did they I don't. Did. I don't remember. Did that get? Did that get depicted in the '60s movie or no? In the Boston Strangler? Movie? Oh, it sure did. There's like I Henry Fonda scene. has a little has a little bit about ESP, oh, right. and there is a direct. Yeah, there's yeah, a detective yeah. going. I don't know about this, and he's like, "Well, science is looking into it, so that's right. We that's should." Like, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I got a little woo woo in in me. I think there is something to that stuff, but it's like. Right. P- policing ha- wants this self-image of being so scientific and, and modern and, and rational. And the more you look into even like forensic methodologies, the amount to which police work is just vibes is fucking wild. And this movie captures that really well, actually. Okay. You know what? I'm going to ask a question to kind of bring us into the talking about the the main like second half of the Str- Strangler movie, because I think that's the most interesting chunk to get into is do you think that the film is pro or anti-cop or is it somewhere in the middle? Cause it, it is taking I, their side kind of, but it also makes them look like fucking idiots at other yeah. times. 
and there there is the uh um there there's a bit of like i think it just has a 60s liberal hawk perspective in some or or i mean that that might be missing the mark a little bit but there i think just by just by being attuned to the attitude of the times there are there are enough peons to like oh policing is a deeply flawed institution that we have to question but it does land on the like but what'll protect us from the sickos um Mm -hmm. (laughs) well well yeah because it's it does end on a like oh they can't even prosecute him he's just uh you know because of like all the 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 backroom dealing um and so I guess it ends on that more psychological note. But yeah, Henry Fonda has that little thing where he's kind of like, oh, I, you know, I, I, I thought I was an academic who stood for law, but, you know, I'm, I'm just enjoying the hunt, uh, you know, trying to pin this guy down, you know, and he's kind of ashamed of like how, like the thrill, the kind of kick he's getting from like, yeah, trying to get uh, Albert DeSalvo to confess. Um, <clears throat> but there are these moments of just like, questioning the system uh, uh or mm-hmm. i don't know there is a healthy skepticism of policing in there but i i think it winds up just being like uh the cops exist yeah because it i think it's like uh it you know it's it it frames like the gay bar raids and shit like that as being you know stupid and bringing in a psychic is ultimately a very questionable decision but at the end of the day even though they blew it so many times they get to the truth is the way the film still presents it. Like, yeah. Like the film does not remotely question the, the five hour interview where they convinced a guy that they, that he had multiple personality disorder. Like the film seems to believe that it, that, 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 that they did uncover something. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Which, so right. okay, maybe, I mean, maybe it... we should like lay out what happens in this end. So it, in the way the film presents it, it presents DeSalvo as like a family man almost. Right. Yeah, Does, yeah. Which is very wrong, uh, by the way. He that is not. <laughs> he's not just like a. He he was a repeat offender. Like we know for a fact he did a bunch of fucked up stuff. But like, anyway, no. So it frames him as he's like a family man or whatever. But he has multiple personality disorder, um, which I don't even think that the official. That's even the police position. I think that's just that was just for good te- good movie, which you know it is fun. But uh, I don't even think that's yeah. Even the, police's official position that that right. happened but anyway <laughs> a little uh, a little creative license um yeah. yeah so the guy is being genuine when he's saying he didn't do it because he doesn't know he was doing it uh that's that's the so there's these long brutal scenes of them breaking down this guy's memory and making him start to come to grips with the fact that he did it um, and eventually staging it so that he almost strangles his wife right yeah <laughs> And that was the moment he realizes that, oh, it was there. So I don't know. There's yeah. a lot of cool like cinema, like like film readings of this film as being about realizing there's maybe some innate violence and masculinity or something like that. But because they link it to real events, it's hard not to just look at the real events and go, buddy, you made this shit up. Like you just like kind of excuse very clearly a bunch of cops coaching someone by saying it's them making him realize he had a mental disorder. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my, um, my favorite scene with the cops is when, um, a suspect that they're questioning is trying to get away and the cop just punches him in the face instead of like <laughs> trying to restrain him any other way. He just decks him and drops him on the ground. 
Um, and then the, the fucking police boss next to him is like, hey, that's police brutality. We don't do that anymore. And yeah, then they all laugh. And it's like, oh my god, they're just doing brutality and laughing about it. These guys are assholes, you know? Like, I think the film very much does make them look like assholes, even mm. though the main perspective is from from the lead detective, yeah. Bottomley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that that's why I'd say it has, like, a liberal reformer perspective on policing. Like, it, it acknowledges, like, hey, policing did some bad stuff, but... If we if we get a rational technocrat with psychological training to do oversee and coordinate the whole thing, uh, it's going to be great. Yep, it's going to get so good at what it does. It, this it's a perfect example of good apples. Our thesis here too, right? It's it's bottomly redeems the the police department, the Boston police. Department, oh right? boy, can we talk about though how bottomly caught the strangler? He totally did it on accident. Yeah. He knew that a guy had, he knew that his suspect had a bite mark to his right hand. And he just, he knew that. And he was just walking around in a courtroom or in a courthouse. And he happened to get into an elevator with Del Salvo and saw that he had a bite on his hand. And he was like, oh shit, are you my guy? And so it's like, are you kidding me? The detective just stumbled into the suspect in the elevator, and that's how he caught him. That's how he caught the boss. That's strangler, that's how he did was it. Was by yeah. a fucking fluke. It was just crazy, crazy, crazy. Uh, it's it jump. Um, it is jumping ahead to the the second of the two parter a little bit. But there's even like DeSalvo has a line about like fate and randomness. It's like you know who is it that decides like this woman's home or this one's not. You know? Yeah, yeah. There, there is a real, yeah. There, like, and that's why policing is just vibes, because it's all, yeah. It's all just chance at the, you know. It's, it's, it's a bunch of dumb, violent men trying their best to come up with a narrative that, that covers all the stuff they think is related. And uh, at the at the end of the day, it's it's thirteen women murdered in a similar way with not much else, you know, not much else than like the nature of the crime and the one unquestionable thing in their minds is that one guy did it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which, Oh man, the, the sixties movie doesn't even remotely question the idea that, that it's more than one person really. If I, I, at least I don't recall it ever engaging with that. No, it does. In the beginning, it kind of shows you, a bunch of potential suspects like they go through a, a, gu- a bunch of guys who are doing other just like creepy sex crimes like there's that one guy who is in the movie theaters and he's like shining his flashlight on women's feet and jacking <laughs> off um so there's like that guy for instance like so they right. bring up other <laughs> they bring up other sex pests for sure but they don't they don't suggest that it was anyone else who did the murders. In fact, yeah. all of the depictions of the murders, they have the actor who plays Del Salvo committing the murders. So it's very much right. like, here's here he is doing it. Yeah, as opposed to, like, like, apparently, from what we know now, that was one of the biggest questions the police department was trying to figure out was whether or not it was one guy. Uh, which the more, you know, the more modern movie that we're going to talk about next uh, next episode deals with that. Um, that question a bit more but it is interesting it's just taken for granted in this movie that like well it has to be the same guy doing all these yeah i don't know right which yeah definitely comes down to like the 
like the mo or whatever uh because then then there's like uh the blue lives mindset magic uh stuff that allows you to look at a crime scene and immediately psychologically completely understand the person who did it uh yeah (laughs) yeah um (laughs) yeah so it's yeah so i mean this is I, you know, I guess I like this movie a lot as a stylistic exercise, but yeah, it, it is like, it, it's this, it's this like high budget, a list exploitation film that is, sort of <laughs> that is panned a bit, but yeah, seems to influence horror and stuff, but it's a depiction of the myth of the Boston Strangler at that time. It's like, uh, you know, it's like Helter Skelter. This is, this is like the establishment's view. It's, uh. It's like a, it's like zero dark 30, like kind of getting it. Like when you were bringing up sort of the cultural reception, it feels like, you know, uh, Catherine Bigelow's war on terror era. Like it, it seems like a kind of a similar, like, oh, there's some problems, but if we just elect the right kind of guy to take over the institute, you know, there's just no questioning of the existence of the institution or the necessity of the institution. Right. right. Um, well, it, yeah. And I think maybe that you could say the film's position is that the Boston police department fucked up, not police fucked up. Right. Right. Yeah. Which I think is the establishment position. Cause I mean, what, one of the big problems, like one of the big things that, you know, we'll talk about this more next episode. Cause it's a big theme in the, uh, in the 2023 movie, but like, um, you know, a, a big part of it is the Boston police department was just fucking refusing to work with other cities. Uh, yep. and so they were not seeing like really obvious trends. If you, you know, worked with other cities, you'd be like, Oh wait, this guy's acting over here as well. Um, yeah. So I think maybe the position of the pro police people is, you know, pro, more pro cop like mentality is probably the Boston police department specifically fucked it up because they're Irish. Um, yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, you know, not, uh, you know, it's not police. It's not police aren't the problem. You know? Right. It's it's yeah. Yeah. The good apple thesis. It's Boston it's, yeah. was just rotten apples at the time. It was just rotten um, apples, bro. So, so, okay. So this is a presentation of the myth. And then, I mean, it's the law and order podcast. We should probably talk about law. Yeah. And let's order. get to law. Uh, and order. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Wait, you don't, but, you don't, you don't want to talk about the scene of him, him doing the final strangling. And he's clearly just like coming himself while he's, uh, yeah. while he's uh, yeah. strangling someone. Like it's, it's very clearly that he's getting sexual yeah. gratification Ooh. from, from the strangling, you don't you don't want to get into the details of that today. <laughs> yeah, posing posing the most disturbing thought: What if murder was sexual? Oh man! Oh, it was it was it was uh, that that end scene was shocking, shocking for sure. Yeah. Yep. And at yeah. the end, you know what they have the audacity to say at the oh, end? Yeah. At the very end. It, so it shows him, you know, he, he has this, this sexual enjoyment, this final strangulation that he's enjoying. And then he falls into a catatonic state permanently. Um, and then there is a, a text that appears at the end of the film that says, This film has ended, but responsibility for so- of society for early recognition and treatment of violent among us has yet to begin. And this is, this is, um, I, uh, you know, before we yeah move on to the, the law and order thing, I'll just say, this is also like why I think it's completely fair to say, uh, that this is a, 
uh, exploitation film because this is straight up the same thing that is in classic like classic uh, uh, exploitation films, like 30s era ones, where how they would justify themselves is quickly being like, well, this was educational, actually. The reason that we, you know, showed you this movie of a lot of people getting high and, and then like murdering each other is because we're trying to warn you about the dangers of marijuana, not just because yeah. we wanted an excuse to murder a bunch of people. Or um, I think Maniac, I think that's the one. I'd, I'd have to double check. But one of them ends explicitly with the exact same thing where it's like, this is raising awareness about mental health. After it's like just a movie of a guy going crazy and murdering people, and it's like, yeah, I don't, I don't think it really <laughs> did much, man. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, a big budget exploitation movie for sure. Uh, but I, uh, I like exploitation movies, unfortunately, so I enjoyed it. <laughs> uh, yeah, they always there's they're they're so informative and they're they're a, they're a little more reflective of like the true nature of the culture at any given time. <laughs> I think so. I think they're the Um, code to understanding shit. But yes, uh, so now we officially get to Law & Order uh, Season 3, Episode 6, Redemption, um, which aired in... Give me the year. Give me the the year. 2001. 2001. A couple months after 9-11. It was in November. Yeah. I love this episode. Oh, this is a great episode. Okay, let's let's Mm -hmm. go ahead and, like, before we get into criticizing it or anything like that and reading into, you know, reading it, it's just, it's great television. This, this was just great, great television. I was, I really loved this episode. (laughs) Um, and you can tell we're in season three by Olivia's haircut, which is now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. When we put it on, we're like, holy shit. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Um, man, there were. I appreciated the time jump because we did like a couple episode, you know, first season episodes in a row, and now we're jumping to three, and then we're gonna go back to one next. <laughs> so kind of appreciating that, but it's like, uh, no, the extent to which everybody's like character characters had shifted. Like um, Olivia's no longer a hothead. Stabler's the hothead. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh uh, man! And is he the hothead yeah. in this one? Let me yeah. tell you. <laughs> uh yeah so it's it you know um tutuola ice t has has joined the cast i think he's only in it for like two or three scenes but he is a cast member yeah he's like about as important as like munch around this time you know he's just kind of a background character he's he hasn't gotten pulled to the front quite yet yep um so yeah it's like fully classic classic era classic you know Benson Stabler era Mark One setup going on. Uh, it's all there. Uh, yeah, uh, it's the 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 Soho Strangler has returned. The uh, episode actually begins with um, Stabler having a court case. It kind of just drops us in the middle of a a little story here, where Stabler is testifying in court about an eight year old girl who has been abused by her grandfather. And the eight-year-old girl is shown having to testify, and Stabler has to testify, and it depicts this defense lawyer as just, just absolutely insane. Um, and uh, the guy ends up getting off, you know, despite the fact that the eight-year-old girl testifies, um, the guy gets off, and um, Stabler is really pissed off about it. 
And so it kind of just in- it kind of just introduces us into this episode with like, hey, uh, just so you know, Stabler's kind of pissed off right now. Oh yeah, yeah, the system's fucked. These demonic defense attorneys and they're yeah, and they're getting pedophiles off ways. The, this is a so well directed scene, but also like the entire message is defense attorneys like should just be put in camps. Like that's that's I mean. Because the way it, it plays out is it just, it, I believe it just cuts immediately in the beginning to the defense attorney grilling, um, got someone, I don't know, uh, no, grilling Stabler, I believe it, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it opens on Stabler on the stand while the defense attorney's grilling him, and the way it introduces information makes you just despise the defense attorney, because initially it sounds like a good question, you know, it sounds like the defense attorney's asking decent questions um, about, like, how do you know it wasn't any of the other people that was alone with the victim? And then finally it, it says, well, the victim's eight years old. That information's suddenly introduced, and you're like, and she oh. identified the grandfather. And, it, and, ident- and then the person who was identified, yeah, is their grandfather. So it's like, you know, you know, as a human being that an eight year old is going to know the difference between their grandfather and the plumber who was there for five minutes. So you're just suddenly like, and then when he drops the, li- the defense attorney drops the line, like, oh, yeah, well, eight year olds never lie, of course, do they? And it's like, you just want to fucking kill this guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh so yeah stabler a little steamed right off a little, the bat a little rough a little rough so then we arrive at the crime scene there is a 25 year old woman there is no sign of forced entry her hands have been tied with pantyhose which is a uh, similarity to the boston strangler he used he used pantyhose to tie around their throats to strangle them with. Um, but in this, we get to see the pantyhose come out with tied up hands. Um, she was raped and had her throat slit. And um, most notably, the uh, killer left a white rose on her pillow at the crime scene. Um, and Munch you know, kind of makes his glib comment where he's like, oh, so he's a romantic psycho. Yeah. Oh man. St- yeah. Stabler looks like he's gonna have a meltdown in this scene. Actually, I think that my notes in this, yeah. I wrote down Stabler's gonna have a fucking meltdown. Like he's on the verge of just freaking the fuck out. And he, he does at some point. I think he throws a coffee cup or something. He, like he. Yeah. He literally. Just, yeah. Like, when he walks in on this scene and they, you know, lay it out to him like everything that this woman has been through, then he's kind of just like, I thought my day couldn't get any fucking worse. And yeah, he's just each- like. Each piece of Literally information fuming. is just more, each piece of information about the rape that makes it more depraved is like making him more angry and you could like see it on his face. Yeah. 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 He's definitely starting the, starting the stabler down roll. That, uh, that'll happen. Yeah. Um, so yeah, fast forwarding a little bit into the episode, unless you have any notes about this, but I'd say, so then another victim ends up showing up so there's there's a second one killed in the same way Um, yeah i I was gonna say the the second one um there was similarly um the hands were tied with pantyhose the throat was slit and she was raped and there was a rose left but in this one was a little more graphic um her face had been beaten um severely so the it was kind of showing the crimes are getting more violent Um, and right whenever the second victim comes out, then they're able to bring in the psychologist, Agent Wong, 
Um, they bring him in, and he's one of my favorite characters in Law and Order. He is awesome. Um, but they bring him in for his his professional opinion, and he kind of gives a profile of the killer. And he says, this man, he has to be intelligent, articulate, and charming. And um, they note that with the um, second woman, pieces of her flesh are missing. Like, literally, there are circles of her chest, and, and the show shows it. It's not shy about it. There are circles of her chest of flesh just, like, missing, where you can see he just, like, cut pieces of her off. And so that's really bizarre. It's very violent and, and graphic. And um, when this happens, uh, Stabler gets, gets really aggressive when questioning a suspect. He kind of flies off the handle and pins the guy against the wall and is kind of shaking him. And is like, you know, give me the answers. Did you do it? Did you do it? And Olivia is like, hey, Stabler, you need to chill the fuck out. <laughs> do you want a lawsuit? You yeah, she like, literally yeah, yeah. says that. She's <laughs> like, hey, man, you trying to get a lawsuit or what? And Stabler's like, oh, don't worry. Your ass is covered. Don't don't you worry nothing about it. And she's oh, like, man. okay. And, and you know, just, suddenly, he's... suddenly she's the one who's like the one keeping them, you know, yeah. on the right path. Yeah, it, 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 it. Yeah, it works pretty well of that dynamic. I was also gonna. You mentioned Wong. He uh, Stable looks like he was about to murder Wong also because <laughs> Wong was giving you know a kind of cold psychological read on the guy, but he was using semi-positive sounding words, even though it was his yeah. point being there's very <laughs> and Stable was just so pissed at the concept of this guy being well nice and articulate or something that he was yeah, like, yeah. I'm gonna fucking kill you. <laughs> how come you can't how come you couldn't have come up with this earlier that's what he's like getting on wong about and he's like well there wasn't a trend then it was just one murderer <laughs> yeah and that's exactly that's exactly i mean right <laughs> i mean he's right um he also does say that the white roses he thinks symbolize purity and innocence mm. so he thinks that the the killer has has some sort of psychological baggage concerning purity. Yeah, he's like trying to find women that are pure and then they're not pure enough for him and he murders them. I think that was his, his read on what was going on there. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then um, then a, a guest detective shows up. This is, um, yeah, the star of detective the episode, Hawk. honestly. Yeah. Oh my gosh, he shows up who was a man that apparently Stabler took a class at his police police academy class or something like that. Um, so he kind of has a prior history with this guy, and they don't seem friendly, like, at all. Um, don't It doesn't really tell you what their beef is, but they're not very friendly. Um, but this Detective Hawk comes in and he says, You know what? I know who did these two murders. And they're like, Oh shit, you know, we're listening. And he's like, it's the Soho Strangler, the guy that I put away in the 80s. And this guy's name is Roger Barry. Um, and supposedly this guy recently got out of prison. So he's like, I know who did these crimes. It's Roger Barry. I'll bet my money on it. And, um, you know, he has an explanation for why the MO is slightly different. Because there was never... Um, you know, removed pieces of flesh from previous victims by Roger Barry. And 
this detective, he's like, yeah, I'll tell you exactly why he's doing that. It's to remove his bite marks because he bites his victims and he's trying to not get caught by his teeth, you know, impression um, by the police. So he is cutting out their flesh when he bites them. And so he has like a pretty good explanation for why this is the guy who did it. So they, they head over to his house and they end up finding two newspaper clippings of the two dead girls. And so it's like, oh shit, yeah, this guy did it. Yeah, so so Hawk takes over the investigation and stuff. Um, I, I'd like to pause real quick and just like talk about initial impressions of Hawk because he's an interesting character. He's um, who you know I feel like we should would try to get in the habit of mentioning the actors who is played by David Keith. So there you go, um, <laughs> the the man yeah. himself. Uh, he yeah I I uh, I don't know. What did you guys kind of like think of him? I don't know. Yeah, classic. Uh, classic grizzled detective uh the old the old star you know um like yeah yeah clearly made his bones on this case Uh, you know his entire reputation hinges on uh putting this guy away and yeah i mean he just seems like the cock of the walk uh Mm -hmm. throughout the first phase of the investigation uh but then things take a bit of a turn. <laughs> things do take a bit of a turn. There's kind of, yeah, a dynamic getting set up in this episode where it's like Stabler versus Hawk a little bit, where it's like, whether this is intentional or not, it starts to become old versus new regime. It starts to become yeah. a conversation of an old regime of cops versus this new regime of cops, which I, you know, there's a lot of ways to read and I'm not sure yeah. I have a consistent reading of it, but I, I have one that I'll kind of get into as it goes on. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's it's a bit of a generational tension. So yeah, it's um, uh, it, I don't know. It, it reminded me a bit. Let me let me mention another show while we talk about the show we're talking about. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine, uh, the episode that had like Stacy Keach as the old uh, the old cop novelist or whatever, and just the whole like jake peralta's just around him like just hero worshiping him worshiping him but then he'll just like like casually talk about like all of the insane violence and corruption that all the old guys did and it just the most (laughs) glowing terms it's like oh yeah we used to rough up the long hairs and (laughs) so there's this is so it's a bit of that but just like played straight it's like the old school cop versus like the the yeah uh, well, and to to almost its credit, like, well, I mean, it's not a com. SVU is not a comedy, so I guess that's no. that's why it 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 does the same point differently because yeah. Brooklyn Nine Nine makes it as a joke where it's like, you know, like you said, he's just like fawning over this guy who's talking about just horrendous shit he did. Um, in this episode, it's it's much more like Elliot Stabler really realizing that the uh, the old type of cops were were monsters, and it's played very seriously. Um, yeah. And they do, he kind of has a moment where he's like, oh shit, is this guy, did this guy fuck it up? Because he is interviewing family members of this supposed Soho Strangler, and they're like, that confession was forced. He did not do it, and his whole family is very much like, he did not do it, he couldn't have done it. The whole confession was forced, and... They were very much on Roger Berry's side and they were, I mean, they interviewed an aunt who was willing to hide Roger Berry from the police for weeks on end um, because she believed firmly that he didn't do it. Um, So Stabler was kind of like, wow, that's really weird that the family is like 
you know, really defensive of him. So he's kind of starting to get his sneaking suspicions with this Detective Hawk guy. Like, did he do his work the best or? Yeah. He also has an interesting heart to heart with Hawk at this probably my some of there's a couple favorite scenes I have from this episode. And one of them is at the bar when they're waiting mm-hmm. for Roger Barry to sh- was it? Yeah, they're waiting for Roger yeah. Barry to show when up. they're getting lunch. Yeah, so they they find out they're going to the bar that's like Roger Berry's like uh, regular. Yeah, yeah. And so they're gonna catch him, and so they you know order drinks and they're chatting while they're waiting for him to arrive. And you know Stabler just on his verge of a mental breakdown as he's been this whole episode just says I'm just so tired of losing. And you know Barry is like, well, you know, look, you can only do your job. You know, you can't you can't you know live up to you know making the world perfect and. You know, all there is is just, you know, doing the best you could. And part of it is Sabler's beating himself up because he, he told the eight-year-old victim from the case in the beginning that uh, he would uh, he would never let this happen to her again. And then, you know, he the guy got off. And so, you know, it's probably happening again. And, uh, you know, classic kind of begrizzled cop uh, hot gets to be like, well, at least you gave her a few days respite from it all so i don't know it's like just on a like storytelling level it's a really good scene like mm-hmm. i don't know it, it hits hits you in the gut a few times i like it that being said it i i you know obvious it's copaganda folks i don't know if you yeah say. <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i feel like it's hard because i i feel like i need to add that every time but it's like oh, everyone knows my position i don't need to yeah uh <laughs> yeah turns out the show that's been on for 20 years is fun to watch <laughs> it's really well written yeah. <laughs> oh man so yeah this will this will get we'll get into now the the mess here so uh they find out roger barry you know he, he the, they're talking to the bartender and they're and he's like hey roger barry's late and the bartender's like oh sometimes he gets caught up watching the watching the fairies off the at the pier the pier and so they take off running to catch him because they're like oh he's probably still at the pier and they come over and my second favorite scene or my other favorite scene, whatever, is they find Roger Barry with a noose around his neck trying to run into the ocean and, like, hang himself and drown himself at the same time. <laughs> and they're, like, grabbing him <laughs> and trying to hold him back. And yes, Stabler has to tackle him down so he doesn't pitch himself <laughs> off the beer and hang slash drown himself. I don't really well, know what his goal was. It wasn't the water was close enough that he wouldn't have hung himself. He would have just been had a noose on his neck in the water. I don't really well, know what his plan was, but I think that's also intentional. They're trying to convey pretty quickly. This guy is not Barry is, is pretty inept. Like I think the instant Stabler and Barry are talking, you bec- like the instant Roger Barry is just weeping and saying, don't, don't take me back. You're suddenly aware that like this guy totally didn't do it. <laughs> like, <laughs> and yeah. him being such, so inept at committing a, at committing suicide seems to be kind of even gesturing at do you think this guy really could have committed those murders right and it's just like yeah yeah, yeah the narrative like oh no well yeah he's he's in- inept in every other aspect of his life but is a murder savant like, yeah his room is messy and shit like that when they investigate it like yeah i mean he's yeah. just he's just a guy who likes boats he's a neurodivergent man who likes boats Yes, yes. They um they do when they go but they bring him back to the squad, to the squad room. Everyone is like, "Are you are you kidding me? This guy is literally mentally retarded." Like, yes. How is That's... this the killer that we've been looking for? Yes, yes. Like no one believes it. 
Yeah, that is the direct quote, to be clear, not a mm. just randomly yeah, dropping yeah, that. No, that is, uh... It uses some outdated terminology <laughs> here. Uh, but it's, uh, it is a pretty good scene, too, where they're like, are you serious right now? You really think this guy... Actually, this is another connection to... I don't remember if it was on mic or not, but I mentioned Memories of Murder. Uh, another connection to Bong Joon-ho's movie, too, as well, where they, they take somebody who is neurodivergent and uh, try to frame them for a murder. So... Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. It turns out police work is just identifying a weirdo and pinning a bunch of shit on him so you can clear your case file. It's a. Uh, it's a uh, pretty. I don't. So it turns out cops are also ableist, folks. That's uh That's the next move. Here. Really? <laughs> are you kidding me? Yeah. Well, we okay. I so would have never <laughs> guessed that out of that. We knew they were racist. We knew they, you know, go after poor people. We knew. That they were sexist, but I thought at least. <laughs> I thought at least. <laughs> be they nice wouldn't about be this ableist. One. Turns out that's not true. What? Yeah. After that, they find out. They realize, oh, he couldn't have done it. Then they go to try. Yeah. They're going to go back through the case file. But Hawk has already checked the case file out to hide it. And then they have uh, their little heart to heart as he's drunk and depressed and admitting his sins to Stabler. Yeah. Uh, Oh my gosh. He's just like, he, he tells him, he's there. like, I did it. I forced the confession. He's like, I fed him evidence. I fed him. I told him what to say over and over until he said it. And yep. It's, it's uh, just, this, it's just, he flat out admits to it in a, in a drunken stupor. <laughs> it's good. It's good. Uh, writing too, because you know, you know, it's the case before he finally admits it too. because when, when he, when Sabre comes in, uh, you know, he's drunkenly listening back on the interrogation tapes. And if you're listen if you're paying attention to what's on the tapes, it's like him just straight up being like, she had, yeah, she had blonde hair and her being like, yeah, she had blonde hair. Like he's str- literally yeah. just walking this guy through just repeating what he's saying. So, so then yeah. they, they kind of turn their attention to uh, a new guy and they find a, what is he a financial advisor he's uh doing no, he tax an, audits or something he, he's like that. an auditor for the irs oh okay he's an auditor for the irs excellent which is an inc- oh man i just love it I as mean... uh dick wolf's <laughs> pet theory of of the boston strangler murders oh yeah it's a fucking irs guy it's an irs guy <laughs> It's always it's a fucking, fucking tax IRS. man. He has to travel, and he tar- <laughs> and he has access to everybody's records, and he has leverage, and it's just like, <laughs> yeah, it fits the profile. What if, what if, what if the Boston Strangler was an evil tax man? I think it's funny because, uh, like it, it, the 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 episode. If you if it wasn't tax guy, the whole thing would be like, look, they blamed this poor neuro- neurodivergent guy when it was actually like a very much a rich successful straight white guy which is like what you know you know that's like kind of how it's framed except they still have to add it irs to make it a little more politically neutral like he's not just a rich guy he's a rich being a a tax guy so remember you know so that we could get the conservatives in like come on you know you hate tax guys right Right. so (laughs) (laughs) the the least valued government worker the tax guys do you think uh, do you think Dick Wolf was influenced by that that 1984 uh, Rockwell song Somebody's Watching Me? Uh, there's a line in it where he goes, "Who's watching me now? Is it the IRS?" And then he goes, "Ooh." <laughs> 
it's just like a big paranoia song about someone watching him and and he eventually lands on it's the fucking irs it's always the irs man oh man Uh, so yeah with with a so he's a tax advisor so this is where yeah but this is also this is where the title of the episode kind of like comes out because the whole thing is it's becoming about hawk kind of redeeming himself for putting this guy away for 18 years who did not deserve it so he's redeeming himself by uh you know by getting the real guy now uh better late than never or whatever is kind of the mentality i i don't know how much of a how much of a good redemption this is but whatever <laughs> it's it's good it's good for a, a story but i feel like you might need to put in a little yeah more i work, mean buddy. yeah just fuck roger barry's whole life that he spent in prison like yeah just yeah the, the whatever is he just, just he just spent fucking two decades in prison i mean the show does kind of like it the show's sympathetic to him but in a way it also like gets him calls him the r word and then dumps him and you never see him yeah. again right, then, you, right. then you know nothing about what happens to him they're just like oh he's not the guy and then they let him out oh yeah, yeah. I, i'm sure his <laughs> life is just fine after that i'm sure roger perry is just okay as soon as the police stop bothering him there's well, no residual yeah. trauma or anything from being incarcerated falsely for 18 years yeah not to mention i don't think that gets rid of him having to you know have a uh uh his fucking you know people keeping an eye on him he's still he's still you know a guy who got out let out on good behavior he's still gonna have the throat like the state breathing down his throat that didn't get changed the court already made their decision they didn't take it all but 20 minutes ago yeah i kind of wish there was a little more follow-up on him although this is also dick wolf style because it's all about what happens in the workplace and the personal stuff just kind of gets left out and that's you know that's kind of the yeah yeah uh so they catch the IRS guy and then Hawk he's got they have we have a nice long rooftop chase. Yes. And the Classic. guy is dang, dangling from from a building and and Hawk has already started uh stomping on his fingers like yeah I should just end it right now and it's like you know what like kind of same difference kind of same difference at this point i don't think there's inherently one better fate for this dude there's like t- tv tv tropes was probably just going nuts at this episode yeah. this is like the scene in every movie he's you know the killer's dangling off the edge he's stomping on the fingers and then stabler comes in to intervene we see character growth you know how you know stabler was so vengeful and shit at the beginning but now he's like hawk don't do this we'll be just as bad as them You'll I be just as bad as him. If that you line do, if you, pissed you, me off. I know, that I know. Because I was like, I don't think that's true, dude. <laughs> you just conclusively proved that this dude has been just like murdering women for multiple decades in multiple states. It's fine if he falls off a building. <laughs> like, it's, it's okay. fine. Yeah, now that being said, I don't want to be rooting for necessarily extrajudicious action no, from but, police officers. Uh, but like, but uh, yeah, yeah, if we can look past, you know, if if we decontextualize it completely from the institutions with it within under the jurisdiction in which yeah, this yeah. event is portrayed, uh, yeah, you've got a guy who has been hunting and killing women for decades dangling yeah. off the roof of a building it's Him? fine if he falls off that building yeah i think it's i don't want to i i don't want to like uh you know it's it's yeah 
it, it's not even a heroic act. It's just fine if that guy falls off a building. We uh, we did miss a quick scene here real quick that is, I think, worthwhile, which is them going back to uh, one of the one of the victims from the 80s mm-hmm. killings, uh, oh, their, yeah. their family. Yeah, and, they exhumed her body and asking to exhume the body, which is I, I think uh, if I again, if I were to make a list of like my favorite scenes in this movie, that would also be one of them as well, because it's just good writing. It's good attention uh, anyway, uh, between like, you know, h- him explaining, you know, look, I put the wrong person away for 18 years and I'm going to have to live with that. But the least you can do is just let me make this right. And I don't know. It's just like, you know, again, on television, just from a, a writing and directing perspective, it's a very good scene. I liked yeah. it a lot. Yeah. Credit where credit's due. Yeah. So, uh. <laughs> Good, and that, that good episode the, of television. Mm-hmm. The uh, victim, the girl that they're exhuming in the episode, her name is Marcia Johnston, which is, I think, a nod to Mary Sullivan, um, who actually does get exhumed um, during the investigation process for the for the Boston Strangler. So that was kind of yeah. a, another nod to the Boston Strangler is, um, you know, yeah, yeah, it's it's pulling from the you know the exact case. So with the context of the Boston Strangler in mind now, my basic reading on this episode is that yes, we know the Boston Police Department fucked it up, and yes, we know that sixties police, seventies policing really blew it, eighties policing in the case of the episode as well. But again, we're we're doing the good apples here, and so Stabler is representing not only is is it redeeming Hawk. It's, it's redeeming Hawk by the, the police are redeeming themselves. Now this is with the nineties, this, you know, with the crime bill with stuff like that, this is a new generation of cops supposedly. And so the redemption in this is not just Hawk. It's a redemption of police. That's what the show I think is arguing essentially is we've got a new generation in. Yeah. The police of the sixties and the civil rights stuff that was all fucked up, but now we got these post racial cops. Now we have these post corruption cops and this is the new era. Stabler represents these good apples taking. Over. Yep. Yeah. It's, it, it solved the problem. What, what if we simply throw away the bad apples and put the good apples in It mm-hmm. will It'll fix everything. It's another example of what Chimera said in the first episode uh, of the show, actually episode zero that we recorded here, where Law and Order's position is that a good apple, the you know, uh, you know, bad apples ruin, spoil the bunch, but good apples cure the bunch. They heal the bunch. Yeah, because they through, can, through, through contact Hawk. with Stabler. You, yeah, Hawk mm-hmm. is able to redeem himself, and it was it was kind of a touching little moment, like. Whenever they do eventually pull the guy up off the roof, you know, dangling off the side of the roof, they pull him up and, you know, they're arresting him, you know, and they're fucking kneeling on his back and there's just clearly a guy pinned down. And they're like, Elliot looks at him and he goes, you're a collar, Hawk. Yeah. Hawk goes, thanks. And then he goes, whatever your fucking name is, Archie, you're under arrest. And he gets to make the collar. So he kind of gets to redeem himself, his... His, not just himself, like, um, his his insides feel all good and righteous now, um, but literally his police record, now he's arrested the right guy for the crimes. Yep. yep. You, can, you can simply undo the mistakes of the past. Undoing the mistakes. And in this, Beautiful. it is, 
you know, the kind of consistent, I think, like thing we're going to come back to off and on and on with the show is like Law and Order as wish fulfillment as like kind of the 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 pro cop liberals fantasy. You know, it represents taking care of, you know, this this fuck up that we had in the past, you know, with the the. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's uh, and that rubbed me the wrong way for sure. Like once yeah. I like really started seeing that, I was like, yeah, this is uh, this is pretty rough. Um, also, I think it is interesting that the uh, that they are explicitly taking a position. This episode is taking a position that the Boston Strangler was not DeSalvo. I mean, that's yeah. basically what it's claiming by making all of these by making all of these connections. The pantyhose, the fucking. Uh, what else was it? The um, forced confession. There was so many similarities that points to this is this is the Boston Strangler they're talking about. Yep, yep. And uh, you know, I, I another you know, it, so it, it definitely takes a position. DeSalvo didn't do it. It's definitely saying the Boston cops like blew it in the sixties. But it also is not questioning again the thesis that. Uh, we'll get into more next episode that it was not just one killer um, and that it might've represented something more systemic. And I think that's uh that's kind of interesting that it never questions that though. At the end of the day, there is still a perp and the perp can get arrested. At the end of the day, the bad guy is still just one bad guy. You know, it's not a structure. It's not a, you know, yeah. it's, it's a dude that we can just, we can arrest him and that fixes society. Yep. You mm-hmm. warehouse them in a prison Yep, <laughs> and that and that fixes it <laughs> as uh, as opposed to um, actually kind of what Law and Order argues in the next episode we're going to talk about uh, in the next, you know, in part two of this, where it does kind of start to point out that maybe there's also a systemic sexism thing or something. I don't know. And um, also the uh, the 2023 Boston Strangler movie uh, explicitly takes that position. So that's a little taste of the next episode. But. Before we get into that, uh, I guess, is there anything else about this episode we really want to dive into? Um, I just wanted to mention a book. Um, If you're interested in the Boston Strangler case, and if you are specifically interested in theories about it being done by someone else other than DeSalvo, or you are interested in um, learning more about a specific victim... Um, there is a book about Mary Sullivan uh, that's written by actually her nephew, um, who is a journalist. So it is called A Rose for Mary, The Hunt for the Real Boston Strangler by Casey Sherman. And it's, um, it's an interesting book. Um, like I said, it does suggest that Del Salvo wasn't the killer and it does propose uh, alternative theories um regarding um the murder of mary sullivan and i will say the only thing i'll caution about this book is i i still don't know how i feel so i guess you can sort out your feelings for yourself but um the 2013 exhumation of del salvo um that linked the dna evidence was with uh mary sullivan's case so there is the one case that has been linked to him, at least by DNA evidence, uh, was the Mary Sullivan case. So this is a book that kind of predates that evidence. It's written in 2003, um, but it is, it is well, um, well-researched and very interesting. It does do a profile on uh, Del Salvo uh, himself as well uh, in the book. So go ahead and check that out if you're ever interested. 
Yeah. It is kind of interesting that it's, it's whole case is, is the one is that, you know, Mary Sullivan wasn't murdered by DeSalvo, even though that's the one that we now have DNA evidence for. But as you said, you, you, you're, you're still sketchy on the, whether the DNA evidence is enough or whatever. Yeah. I just, I just don't know. You know, there's too much motivation for the police to look like a good guy in 2013. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That is post Ferguson. And I just, I just, you know, I'm just really hesitant about them suddenly pulling up, you know, because they they did a DNA test in 2001 and it found no link. Mm -hmm. Now, why did they go back, you know, over a decade later and retest that? I don't know. I just, it seemed a little bit too much like a win for the police to me. Yeah. On an, on an otherwise very sketchy case in which there was at least a forced confession for. And I mean, at, at best, you know, like you said, that proves that he did one murder. That doesn't prove mm. he did all 13. Yeah, because I think that's that's my position as well. And again, I mean, none of us are experts on this stuff, so don't take us too seriously here. But um, I think my position is I think he did do the Mary Sullivan one because I, I don't know, I'm, I'm a little more trusting of the DNA evidence, although I... I, that's a good point that it happened right after Ferguson, so I don't know. But well, wasn't that like well twenty? Yeah, Ferguson. That was twenty fourteen, wasn't? Oh, it? Oh, that would be the oh. year after. But it is okay. Never mind. It's, I mean, it was a heated time for cops. It was. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it was. Yeah. yeah, there was a lot more. I, I'd say it's like there was a lot of like the. I think you see a rise in anti-cop sentiment around the time of Occupy because, like, I mean, yeah. it was before the. Uh, but the the murder of Mike Brown really put yeah the yeah that uh, <laughs> the widespread practice of cops killing unarmed black men for no apparent reason uh, that really brought that back into the the popular consciousness. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, before that, I think it was like the treatment of protesters in Occupy, at least for you know young uh, left leaning and left curious college students at the time. Uh, so yeah, that might be just me projecting my own experience on everybody, but, uh, yeah, definitely by those like uh, terminal Obama years, there was a lot more widespread distrust of Please. the cops. Yeah. yeah. Which is yeah, only increased, but, um, yeah, they yeah, haven't, I- uh, they haven't really uh, done anything. They haven't really done anything <laughs> really to, uh, yeah. address the concerns. <laughs> Uh, they made some TV about it. That's what they did. Uh, yep. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think my position is I, I'm I'm sympathetic to that position. But I think I think that the Salvo probably did kill Mary Sullivan. But I think I, I think I'm kind of sold on the position of the movie that we're going to talk about next next episode that it was um, representative of actually multiple killers using the copycat thing to get away with it. Um, I'm I'm actually kind of sold on that position, but. We'll, uh, yeah. we'll see. We'll see. Um, I think you also wanted to bring up another book. Chimera. Yeah, there is one more book that if you are interested in um, just the gendered aspect of this case, um, this book is not about the Boston Strangler. Um, this is a feminist philosophy book that uh, came to mind when I was watching um, these episodes of Law and Order and these movies. Um, this book is called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny by Kate Mann. And um, it's a piece of feminist philosophy in which it brings up strangulation, actually. Um, it notes that strangulation is a 
um, uniquely masculine um, crime. Uh, it is a it is a fun fact to note that um, strangulation is the number two method of uh, for men's murders in the in the United States. Number one is actually the handgun or pistol, and for women it's totally different. For women, it's poison. Uh, that's number one. If women are the perpetrators of or the you know of murder, um, but uh, Kate Mann talks about how strangulation. Uh, or women, women who are strangled uh, rarely cooperate with the police, and that often strangulation is called choking, which um, is incorrect. Um, choking is, you know, an obstruction of the windpipe by food, by an object. It has no, no fault attributed to choking. You ju can just choke on your own spit, you know? Um, but strangulation is something that has to be done by someone. Someone get, strangles you. Um, you get strangled by a thing or a person. Um, so it kind of takes away the agency to call it choking, she notes. Um, but that was really interesting because, I mean, even, and I don't fault Josiah for this, but even when we were watching the movie, um, we were watching the 1968 movie and um, we were watching one of the graphic scenes and Josiah said, oh, wow, that that lady is totally getting choked right now. And I was like, no, she's not choking. She's getting strangled. Yeah. Well, and I think there's probably some some connection to that, too. And then the more sexual nature of it, because I, I think like when you talk about choking, if you do talk about it, like somebody doing it to someone else, it's uh, and I'm sorry, this is gross, but it is usually in a sexual context, you know, kind of. a Yeah. And yeah. so it's it's. You know, you, you have pointed that out and I kind of got hit by that is like, you know, I'm watching this movie with a lot of really sexualized violence. And the phrase I use specifically to describe what is taking place is is a more like sexual way of saying it. Yeah, rather a, than I, a passive sexualized term rather than yeah. the, the violent one. So even like even on the level of language, like, I mean, yeah, your subject position is a you know the subject the the doubled male gaze of your experience here uh, yeah i um i had <laughs> you, a really you're first like unconsciously you're trying to like distance yourself from the intention of the act yeah. being depicted right yeah that's yeah yeah it's yeah. pretty mm -hmm. wild huh yeah it's it's weird man <laughs> Right. I, um, you know, this is why I hate I hate feminist philosophy because it makes me realize <laughs> I'm doing something fucked up by accident. I'm like shit. Oh yeah, no, we're we're white men. We were uh, we I'm were socialized perfect. to be predators. <laughs> right. Oh god, I hate that. Uh. Well, um, fun fact. So whenever I first read this book in my feminist philosophy course. Um, <laughs> My professor, who is a bit of an unconventional uh, educator, to say the least, um, she, uh, you know, kind of asked the class, she said, who in here has been uh, strangled during sex? <laughs> and I rose my hand and she goes, and did you want to be? And I said, yes. And uh -huh. she said, shame on you. <laughs> <laughs> she says that. Amazing. That's misogyny right there. You're you're yeah. participating in misogyny against yourself, Kelly. <sighs> and yeah. I was like, I don't that's, know. I like yeah. it. <laughs> Is this the same professor that also said that she's um, honorarily Mexican? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that was so the just same just uh, just grain, grain of salt. Honorary, there. honorary <laughs> Latina. 
Oh, that's our honorary Latina yes. sister. Because she yeah. spent enough time in the uh, in Latin Because America. she spent enough time in Costa Rica. Incredible. <laughs> no notes. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I, I, we, uh, you know, as, as Chimera's mentioned, this we is a white lady. We went, it's a white uh, lady, isn't yes. it? It's yeah. Uh, yeah. Chimera and I went to college together, so this this is a professor I also had at one point, and uh, I would I would say she was maybe one of my less favorite professors. Uh, yeah, not a fan, not a fan. Well, she's it was cool. But, she was one of the only people who would teach feminist philosophy, which I appreciated. But she found a way yeah. to make it as uh, abrasive and unpleasant as possible. So thanks. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, my little story there was kind of an insight into how every class went. Is um, it was just deeply personal for no reason. Um. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. The <laughs> right encountering the the kind of feminist professor that like uh, you know inspired the stereotypes, maybe. Y- yeah, no, she literally is that. I mean, she's she. Should we be doing this? We probably shouldn't be rehashing no, lately, yeah. this professor's uh, person. We'll do this off mic. We'll do this <laughs> off mic between episodes today. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, I think we'll probably return to the the down girl thesis um, in the yeah. next episode a bit. Because I think the next episode is going to be a lot more about gender. Um, but yeah, is there uh, is there yeah. anything else you guys want to talk about with this specific episode, or do you think we kind of uh, we kind of? I think I think I think th- it's good. Yeah, I think so. I think we we talked about a lot here. So beautiful. Well, this sets us up. We uh, we have uh, behind the curtain here. We often record uh, two episodes on the same day, but unfortunately for you all, it's going to be a two week gap. So uh, look yeah. forward to two weeks from now for part two of the Boston Strangler yeah. episode. <laughs> uh, for us, it'll be uh, a half hour gap. Uh, and yeah, uh, thanks for listening. I have been Josiah. I'm Kamara. And I'm Josh. And you can follow the show at Good Apples Pod on Twitter. And you can also email us at thegoodapplespod at gmail.com. And we'll maybe read your thoughts on the show. But, uh, you know. Who knows? Just make them good thoughts. Um, yeah, and that's it. I think that's uh, that's. Well, did we come up with a sign off? Is it just done? Done? Is that what we're doing? Sure. Done. 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 Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>